This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Brave New Films, La Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The Good Fight, Radio Dispatch, and This Week in Blackness. And now that we are brimming with empathy for the black experience from the last episode, we will dive into that sterile look at the structural failures that make these injustices so commonplace. In Ferguson, Missouri, unarmed black teenagers shot by a white cop. A peaceful protest quickly evolved. Between protesters and police in riot gear. A small army on the street dressed in military-grade body armor, carrying assault rifles, rolling around in armored vehicles. It's completely excessive. Ferguson, Missouri. Population 21,000. Why in the world do their police look like this? Why are they driving a $300,000 armored vehicle through the suburbs? And it's not just Ferguson. Police are being militarized all over the country. Does Keene, New Hampshire, population 23,000, also need that ballistic engineered armored response counterattack truck? How about Coleman County, Alabama, population 14,000? Do they need a mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle? Does Montgomery County, Texas Sheriff's Department need a $300,000 drone? Why do the Fargo, North Dakota police look more like soldiers fighting overseas? How did local police all over America become hostile military forces? Because the federal government has been spending billions of dollars making them that way. They said it was to make us safer, to protect us from criminals and terrorists. But is that really what's going on? After America launched the so-called war on drugs, drug dealers and thugs became public enemy number one. So Congress came up with a series of programs that allowed the military to give $700 million worth of equipment to local police forces. Ammunition, machine guns, armored cars, even aircraft. All these weapons that were designed for the battlefield came to a main street near you. Then the Justice Department provided grants that allowed police to buy even more equipment. That was another $1 billion per year by the late 1990s. After the September 11th attacks, we launched a new war, this time it was the war on terror. Like drug dealers, terrorists could be lurking behind every corner. Because a terror attack could come from anywhere and anyone. So the new Department of Homeland Security granted even more money to law enforcement. A total of $35 billion. When you keep declaring wars at home, it's no wonder the police become warriors. All this because the federal government is sending billions of dollars of arms to police forces who don't need them, aren't trained properly, and are all too eager to use their toys on the people they're supposed to protect. Do these images look familiar? Some of the same gear hit the streets of Ferguson, Missouri in August of 2014. It's time to shut these programs down. Proximate cause of the national this this week's national conversation on race, of course, is the uh, grand jury verdict regarding Darren Wilson's shooting, fatal shooting of Michael Brown in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. The grand jury or the prosecutor 
issued the grand jury's verdict in the evening. Good timing. Timing, babe. Timing. Why would you want to do that during the day, during daylight hours? Um, I, I learned, ladies and gentlemen, just about two decades ago when I uh, watched every freaking minute of both O.J. Simpson trials that it really isn't smart for uh, a person who hasn't seen the evidence presented and, and heard the witnesses and seen the witnesses testify to opine about a jury's verdict. It's just, it's um, ignorant. So I'm, I'm going to limit myself, since I wasn't there, well, none of us was, except some grand jurors whose names are secret, um, to, to just a comment, just a thought about process. There's a good reason that grand jury proceedings are not usually mini-trials. Because they're secret. Grand jury proceedings are secret. You can't know what goes on in there. There are no, there, it's secret. You understand what I'm saying? So, and so far, we, we in this country have preferred, I know it's kind of an old fashioned thing, to have our trials be public. Unless, unless you're a terrorist. So, that's one good reason why um, you don't turn a grand jury proceeding normally into a mini-trial. Now, the uh, prosecutor in this particular case, Mr. McCulloch, um, won a lot of plaudits from certain people by, by introducing uh, exculpatory evidence and exculpatory testimony into the grand jury proceeding. So we know from his dump of all the uh, evidence after the verdict was released. Of course... The jury doesn't hear evidence read to them. They don't read evidence. They hear testimony. Witnesses appear. So you don't have a sense of how the witnesses looked or sounded to the jury. You you have this sort of desiccated transcript. But what you didn't have, and you can't have in a grand jury proceeding, is cross-examination. And anybody who's been around a trial knows that both culpatory and exculpatory testimony and evidence needs to be subjected to cross-examination for the jury to really understand what's strong and what's weak about that testimony or evidence. That is sort of the nature of the adversarial system. But, um, ladies and gentlemen, you know, if you want secret trials, you've come to the right country. of October 3rd, 1974, two police officers in Memphis, Tennessee were sent to investigate a call about a prowler at a house. When they got to the house, one of the officers ran around the back of the house uh, and saw somebody running away. It was a 15-year-old kid named Edward Garner. He raced across the yard. He started to climb a fence. The police officer believed his suspect was about to get away, and so the officer used his gun. He shot the kid fatally in the back of the head. Edward Garner's family pursued that case for more than a decade. 
1985, the United States Supreme Court threw out that law in Tennessee that had allowed a police, a, a police officer to kill a suspect just because he was running away from the police officer. And because it's the Supreme Court, that ruling also had the effect of overturning any similar laws all over the country that said that was an acceptable use of police force. Even though that's true as a matter of law, though, it doesn't necessarily mean that every state that had a law like that went through the trouble of taking their now unconstitutional law off the books. In Missouri this year, that state's old law about police use of force against fleeing suspects, that showed up in the grand jury proceedings about the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. On the day that Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson showed up to testify to the grand jury in that case, one of the prosecutors passed out to the grand jury a copy of the old Missouri statute, the one the Supreme Court had keelhauled three decades ago. We know what the prosecutor did and what she told the grand jury because there were transcripts made of the proceedings that we now have access to. So we know when the prosecutor showed them this outdated law that was unconstitutional according to the Supreme Court, we know the prosecutor told the grand jury this, quote, it is the law on what is permissible, what force is permissible and when in making an arrest by a police officer. So the prosecutor gave the grand jury that instruction, even though that was not true. And then that same day, the jury, grand jury heard the testimony of Officer Darren Wilson himself about how and, and why he shot Michael Brown. Now, it is worth pointing out that the grand jury proceeding in St. Louis County was sort of unusual by design. The county prosecutor decided at the outset uh, that he wouldn't make a case for the grand jury about what particular charges he thought they might bring. He decided instead that his assistant prosecutors would just dump out for the grand jury any and all evidence that turned up in the case. Every photo, every scrap of paper, everything. And they just let the grand jury sort it all out and decide for themselves on charges, if any. It's a very weird way uh, to run a grand jury, and a lot's been said about that since the grand jury came down with its verdict, or lack thereof. As those secret and unusual proceedings dragged on, uh, the local press did start asking some hard questions about what was happening with that grand jury. Uh, St. Louis Public Radio noted the conflict between the Supreme Court ruling and the invalidated law that was still technically on the books in Missouri. Quote, what the law will, excuse me, what law will be given to the grand jury, said a former chief justice of Missouri's high court. It could make a big difference, right? What law will go to the grand jury? We cannot know whether the prosecuting attorneys uh, in St. Louis County saw those press reports. But we do know that on the last day of the grand jury proceedings, on the day the grand jury started deliberating, the prosecuting attorney who had given jurors a copy of the old invalidated statute, she basically tried to take it back. So this is from the transcript, quote, real quick, can I interrupt about something? Previously, in the very beginning of that process, I printed out a statute for you that was the statute in effect in Missouri for the use of force to effect an arrest. So if you all want to get those out, what we have discovered and what we've been going along with this during our research, doing our research is that the statute does not comply with the case law. She said, quote, so the statute I gave you, if you want to fold that in half, just so that, you know, don't necessarily rely on that because there's a portion of that that doesn't comply with the law. So keep it, just fold it in half so it'll be like you never saw it because, you know, maybe you should. A member of the grand jury asked, question, quote, so we're to disregard this? Answer. It's not entirely incorrect or inaccurate, but there is something in it that's not correct. Ignore it totally. 
So she gave them wrong instructions, then told them the instructions were wrong, and then did not tell them what exactly was wrong about these instructions. So then she gets another question from a jury member. Uh, the Supreme Court, federal Supreme Court, overrides Missouri statutes. Answer, as far as you need to know, just don't worry about that. The other county prosecutor adds, quote, we don't want to get into a law class. We don't want to get into a law class while we're working on one of the highest profile cases in the country in which members of the grand jury have been given competing and wrong and confusing instructions that are key to the case that then they're supposed to partially ignore, but they don't know what part to ignore. The grand jury in that Ferguson case, of course, decided not to indict Officer Darren Wilson for killing Michael Brown. For the past week, my colleague Lawrence O'Donnell has been pulling on this thread in terms of the way the grand jury was instructed about the law, asking what effect being given that outdated statute might have had on the grand jury's decision. And I think that Lawrence is really onto something here. The district attorney's office allowed the grand jurors to travel back in time to the good old days of American law enforcement when the cops could shoot people for running away. Before Darren Wilson was born, that's how far back in time they went. The assistant district attorneys did that by using the old unconstitutional law as the window through which these grand jurors would evaluate Darren Wilson's conduct. Lawrence has been asking about those confusing and apparently wrong instructions for the grand jury uh, for the past week, raising that question and, and asking for comment over and over again from the St. Louis County prosecutor. Uh, so far, he has had no answers, but I think he's asking the right question. I'm just asking if you think so. Am I crazy? Because I think... Slow. What does that mean, though? Is it crazy that I think the government is trying to fuck me? Any way it can. We've been talking about how the way that uh, McCulloch, the, the prosecutor, uh, managed the grand jury uh, proceedings was completely unprecedented uh, and you may have questioned our interpretation of it so I've decided to enlist a man that perhaps you'll respect more than you respect me uh, Justice Antonin Scalia here's what he says about grand juries it is the grand jury's function not to inquire upon what foundation the charge may be denied or otherwise to try the suspects defenses but only to examine upon what foundation the charge is made by the prosecutor Neither in this country nor in England has a suspect under investigation by the grand jury ever been thought to have a right to testify or to have exculpatory evidence presented. That was uh, Justice, Justice Antonin Scalia in wow. 1992. Wow. Uh, and the exact opposite of that was done in this case. Exact opposite. Just, yeah. yeah, just very briefly, because, so, you know, I'm, I was, I'm a former prosecutor. Um, the fact that this prosecutor couldn't get an indictment is an absolute joke. An absolute mm -hmm. joke, um, and it is a, just a small exaggeration when I say that I could have gotten an indictment against the two of you guys for the murder of Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is how simple it is to get an indictment. During a grand jury proceeding, you can present any evidence, evidence that is otherwise uh, uh, inadmissible at trial. So you can bring in hearsay evidence. Mm -hmm. You can bring in evidence uh, from... Uh, lie detector. Other, lie detector. I mean, if, if you got evidence from a, from a coerced confession, that's fine too. 
and everything is fair game for the prosecutor. And you only have to introduce your side, not the yeah. other side. It is the easiest thing in the world. So when you have a, when you have an instance where person A shoots person B with a gun, yeah. and the per, and person B is dead, and the person and person B is unarmed, to not get an indictment is just just ludicrous. Well, yeah. so what? Yeah, so exactly. It's a probable cause finding. It's not a determination of guilt. Exactly. And it's just to see if you go to the next step. And and by the way, so. People are saying, like, oh, you know, this is the way justice was served, that this is what the grand jury said, this is what we have to abide by their decision. No, we don't, by the way. This is not a trial. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I mean, if he went, like, at least Trayvon Martin's case went to trial. Yeah. But at least a jury heard the evidence, right? So this, this didn't happen. I think that's why people are so outraged that the guy doesn't even go to trial. Yeah. What the prosecutor said to the grand jury, um, go, go to Think Progress, read the entire piece, but he talks about if you find anything that would seem like it could get Darren Wilson off, uh, then you should not, you cannot return an indictment. This is a prosecutor. Because both are complete defenses to any offense, and they both have been raised in his, in the evidence. Saying, if you find this, and by the way, we found this, you cannot return an indictment. He is actively trying to dissuade the grand jury from returning an indictment. There is no way they should not have a second grand jury. No he prosecutor has ever uttered those threw words. It. Yeah. it is ridiculous. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once, and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So video cameras probably don't sound like such an amazing innovation. You're probably listening to this podcast on a video camera that is also a phone or a computer. But body-mounted police cameras are a little different. Uh, these are very small but very capable cameras that can be mounted on a collar of a uniform, on a tie, or most commonly as a sort of uh, like a Bluetooth earpiece. They wirelessly send all the images and sound collected to a device that is clipped onto the officer's belt. And that device, at the end of the shift, is plugged into another machine, a computer, and all the audio and video recording is downloaded into a remote server and kept off-site, so it cannot be tampered with. These uh, devices first came on the scene for law enforcement in the UK. And I've watched as use has expanded slowly, slowly, slowly across the United States. Now, things are a little different in the U.S. than they are in the U.K. on several fronts. For example, regular police in the U.K. don't carry guns. But body cameras are exactly the sort of high-tech thing that Americans love. The question about these cameras is, what's their actual impact? Do they actually make things better? 
And the fascinating thing is, in this case, we actually have some real evidence. Just this past couple of years, we began to get real solid studies indicating how these things performed. The one I, I generally point people to is uh, the study that was conducted by the police department in Rialto, California. This is a police department that is roughly the same size as the police department in Ferguson. And the chief in that department was very open uh, to research and had a, uh, a very strong interest in seeing if these body-worn cameras could uh, make a difference for his police department. This is something that's, that's changing the face of law enforcement. People tend to behave a little bit better when they know they're on camera. That's Tony Farrar, the police chief in Rialto, California, speaking to CBS News. Rialto was the first city in America to equip all its officers with body cameras. But it didn't do it all at once. Chief Farrar was behind the decision to do something that doesn't happen too often in law enforcement agencies, a scientific experiment. They designed a real honest-to-God, rigorous study, not just we had a bunch of officers try it and they liked it, but they, they placed uh, officers with and without cameras on the same shift, in the same areas. So this was a randomized controlled trial, right? This is like some people were assigned to the treatment, some assigned to the control. It was like they were testing the effects of fertilizer on peas, but it was cameras on cops. Right, and, and this happens far too uh, infrequently in law enforcement. The results were astounding. I don't think that's too strong a word. Uh, in Rialto, the use of the cameras uh, brought down citizens' complaints against police by almost 90% and brought down the use of force by the police by about 60%. February 13th of 2011 through February 12th of 2012, we had 24 officer complaints. For the following year, we had three. It's about an 87 and a half, almost an 88% reduction. Those are incredible numbers. We don't know yet if we're going to see them replicated uh, at that level. And as we move, these cameras move into larger police departments, if they will be just as effective. But even if they were half as effective as that, at those two things, it would still be incredible. So what's happening here? To understand it, you have to look at the world from both perspectives in a police interaction. First, the perspective of the cops. Police officers all have stories about being hassled on the job by the public, being yelled at, lied to, attacked, and then being hit with bogus complaints about their behavior. And if you think about it, even in the best-case scenario, it's pretty much par for the course. A police officer's job is to show up when something is going seriously wrong, to interact with people in extreme distress. But if someone an officer is talking to knows that he's being video recorded, it affects his behavior. And cops like that. They were quite good at having a sort of civilizing effect. In other words, when folks knew that the police were recording, they tended to behave a little bit better on the other side of the camera. But the flip side is also true. Let's say you don't trust police. Then you want cops to wear cameras because when an officer knows that a camera is recording, when he knows that everything he says or does might one day be played back in a court of law, well, that changes the cop's behavior too.
all of my early experiences with law enforcement, it, it was all negative. I, I can't remember a positive interaction with, with law enforcement. You know, um, I grew up in the inner city community. You know, law enforcement didn't come there to be friendly or hang out. You know, they always came for a purpose. If they, you see them driving up and down the street, you know, they were either looking for somebody, you know, or looking for a situation. That's Terrence Stone again, who you met earlier. He grew up in a community with a lot of gangs, not a lot of opportunity, and a police force that he never felt was on his side. One encounter with the police particularly stuck with him. I remember a particular one when I was um, younger, I think probably um, middle school. My mother, she had gave me some money to go school shopping, so I caught the bus to the mall, went and got my, my clothes and caught the bus back. And and I remember law enforcement, it was the sheriff's department, where they stopped me as I was just walking with my, my bags in my hand, you know, and they, you know, they proceeded to, you know, um, address me, put my hands on the car, where are you coming from, started looking through my clothes, asked me where, you know, where I get these clothes from, did I steal them, they were throwing my clothes in the dirt. You know, I, I already had a shaky relationship with law enforcement, but that, just that, situation that put so much rage and 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 hate against me just in in you know law enforcement because I, I was really just treated very harshly you know and I felt like for nothing that's the kind of thing someone in power only does to a teenager if they think they have total impunity where they know that if anyone complains it'll be the police's word against some kids For Terrence, it made clear which side of the law he was on. I was in gangs for 15 years. I spent 10 of that in and out of um, correctional institutions. I went to um, California Youth Authority when I was 16 years old, you know, for um, attempted murder on a police on a police officer. About 14 years ago. He got out of prison for the final time, and he started a program to help kids find better paths than the one he got on as a teenager. His organization, the Young Visionaries Youth Leadership Academy, now works with thousands of kids a year in cities including Rialto. Now, my relationship with law enforcement is not strained at all. I'm really good friends with lieutenants and chiefs, so I, I communicate better with law enforcement. I start looking at the person instead of the job, because I can't help these kids get off the street without a relationship with law enforcement because law enforcement probably be responsible for taking some of the kids off the street. Now I'm I'm vice chair of the countywide gangs and drugs task force. So I have to I interact with them on a positive level to be able to get things done and be able to help these kids get off the streets. What's Chief Farrar like, the the police chief in Rialto? He's very um, in, engaging in the community. He's always out and about in the community at, at different events and trying to think outside of the box with um, with the Rialto Police Department to get the PD in sync with the community. So he, he's he's out, you know, racking his brain and trying to find different ways where he can make a um, a better department out there. Do you remember hearing about the camera plan, like? When it was first being introduced or or, t or tested, like what did you think of it when you first heard about it? I thought it was was good actually because you know like okay after if I pull you over I have to respect your rights while I'm pulling you over because of these cameras. I think that all law enforcement should have to wear wear a camera so let the public see okay this is what happened from beginning to end and also I think that if they do something negative they should have to face the consequences for that also. 
what they reported was that complaints about police behavior went down, but also the police's use of force went down a lot when they had the cameras on them. Does that does that sort of accord with with your sense of what's changed since they started using cameras in Rialto? Yeah, most definitely because I think that because now they know that that they're being watched. You know, um, matter of fact, super watched because you have this camera on you all day. You know, so you're going to have to really account. You can't change the story up. You can't write a different report of what happened. You know, um, what happened is what happened, and the camera is going to is going to tell you what happened. So I I think that has a lot to do with it. That's why I think all the law all the law enforcement should should wear cameras. Then they'll be not as fast to shoot or do anything else. You know, because of the cameras. Have you ever dealt with a police officer who was wearing a camera? Um, no, but I wish I had in the past. <laughs> How would it have changed your life if if police had been wearing a camera when they dealt with you? I think that that would have would have helped me out, and a lot of other um, kids my age too that grew up around me. Like the, even the even the incident with the police department threw my clothes in it in the dirt. You know, I, I don't think that would have would have happened, and 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 would have you know just raised all this like okay now it's me against you guys. You know, thing that I had had half of my life. That's the interesting thing about cameras. It's not so much what they do record; it's what doesn't happen because they're recording. When things go better, nothing happens. When the situation is calmer, when the citizen is more satisfied, the police officer doesn't use force that he or she might have otherwise. Those are the situations where we don't have an arrest and we don't have a complaint and we don't have a crime. They say nobody gets credit for the disaster that's prevented. Yeah, exactly, because it was prevented. You know, we have a little difficulty imagining the counterfactual world when things go just fine and there's no there's no crisis. We don't make a big deal of that. When something does go wrong, when police do use force and the community does complain that it was unwarranted, police cameras don't actually have a perfect track record for clearing things up. The footage is often confusing. If Darren Wilson had been wearing a camera when he shot Michael Brown, maybe we'd know exactly what happened, but maybe it would still be murky. The real win is preventing the tragedies in the first place. It's extraordinary how, in a situation with zero trust on either side, police cameras seem to appeal to everyone, cops and communities alike. But they're not a silver bullet. It's not just whether you have the cameras; it's how you use them, what policies you have in place. For example, you have to make sure cops can't just turn the cameras off if they want to do something illegal. Yes, this is a very good question, and it, it brings us to an important caveat on these. If we want these things to be not only to serve police well, but to serve the public well, we must have rules about how they're used. It has to be department policy that every time you encounter a member of the public, certainly in public areas, these things go on. Now, what could make police officers do this? Uh, you have to attach a consequence or a further a further rule that if there's a complaint a court case, whatever, uh, in the aftermath of some encounter, and there was no recording. In that event, if there's no recording, then the presumption is against the officer and what the officer said. So if somebody comes forth with a complaint like that, he said, here's what happened, uh, I couldn't believe it, uh, and uh, this is a department equipped with cameras, 
and there's no recording, um, you know, whether it's an internal disciplinary matter or a lawsuit or whatever, the presumption has to be that since there's no reason for no recording, that the citizen is telling the truth. So potentially that would really flip the normal court dynamic where the officer's word automatically carries more weight. Like yeah. The person making the mm-hmm. accusation would have a legally stronger hand if there's no video. I think we're approaching that 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 point right now. I mean, recording has become so uh, ubiquitous in everyday life that people now expect to see a video. I mean, they've seen that so much on television, they expect it. Where is it? And with cameras proliferating here, there, and everywhere, there's going to be more and more questioning, how come the police didn't record this? You know, the NRA has this slogan, an armed society is a polite society, with the idea that if everyone's carrying guns, we'll all be nice to each other. That doesn't necessarily work out that well in theory. And you seem to basically be suggesting that a camera-wearing society is a polite society. Would George Orwell, do you think, be into this solution to to police problems? (laughs) I get your point. Um, I'm not sure I want to live in a society where everybody is videotaping everybody else. When I see Google Glass, and I imagine that is a sort of uh, everyday thing worn by many, many people, uh, I get the willies, honestly. Police are called into non-public areas all the time and could be private activities of taking place in some of those uh, areas. There could be children present. There could be victims of crime. Um, and, and there are real issues with how we deal with privacy. So we want to make sure that we protect ourselves even as we roll this technology out. There are ways to do it. There are rules we can craft. We're not powerless to do that. But I think what we see at this point is that this is a tool that can serve a lot of good purposes and improve uh, both behavior and accountability on the police side of the camera at the same time that it collects evidence and does some good things for police. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. In 1995, uh, a conservative policy wonk named John DiUlio uh, came up with this idea. The coming of the super predators. It was meant to sound scary, and it was. Quote, on the horizon are tens of thousands of severely morally impoverished juvenile super predators. They are perfectly capable of committing the most heinous acts of physical violence for the most trivial reasons. For example, a perception of slight disrespect or the accident of being in their path. 
They fear neither the stigma of arrest nor the pain of imprisonment. They live by the meanest code of the meanest streets, a code that reinforces rather than restrains their violent hair-trigger mentality. Scary, right? John DiIulio, 1995, said there was probably no way out of this super-predator hell that awaited us as a nation because he said it was demographically inevitable. Some people, you know who you are, are just destined from birth to be this monstrous. It's inescapable, demographically speaking. Uh, Diulio said this, quote, Americans are sitting on a demographic crime bomb. The next wave of homicidal and near-homicidal violence among urban youth is bound to reach adjacent neighborhoods, inner-ring suburbs, and even the rural heartland. This crime bomb, he said, probably cannot be diffused. The large population of seven to ten-year-old boys, now growing up fatherless, godless, and jobless, and surrounded by deviant, delinquent, and criminal adults, will give rise to a new and more vicious group of predatory street criminals than the nation has ever known. We must therefore be prepared to contain the explosion's force and limit its damage. That was John DiIulio. Uh, writing in 1995, which was during the Clinton administration. When George W. Bush became the next president, he named John DiIulio to be the first director of the Office of Faith-Based Outreach in the White House. Uh, but meanwhile, in part because of the DiIulio theory about teenage super-predators that could be predicted at age seven, the states started locking up tens of thousands of kid criminals in adult prisons sometimes for life. America really took seriously this prediction about the super predator crime bomb. It was very scary stuff, in theory, about our coming nation of hair-trigger, vacant-eyed, remorseless young super predators. He said it was about to happen. You could tell it was about to, demographically, it was a time bomb. It didn't actually happen. Here's the juvenile arrest rate for murder into the early 1990s, right, going up there. John DiIulio starts writing about the coming wave of violent, juvenile, godless super predators. He starts writing about that in 1995. And then his very racialized, very scary predictions for worse violence coming just over the horizon, they did not pan out. And then ultimately, John DiIulio took it back. Uh, in a court filing just a couple of years ago, John DiIulio finally expressed regret for what he had written back in the 90s. He signed a brief saying that he'd been wrong when he predicted a, a murderous future for all those seven-year-old boys he was so afraid of. Sorry about the whole super predator thing. Sorry to all those kids now doing life in adult prison. But it turned out the glassy-eyed, afraid-of-nothing, superhuman, monstrous American juvenile super predator was just a racial fantasy. Yesterday uh, in Missouri, with the news that a grand jury had decided not to indict Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson, uh, the St. Louis County prosecutor released the documents that were seen by the grand jury and that were generated by that grand jury proceeding. Uh, as part of that, we got to see the grand jury testimony of Officer Darren Wilson. For the first time, we got to see Officer Wilson's description of what happened in his encounter with 18-year-old Michael Brown, this encounter that left Michael Brown lying dead in the street with 12 bullets expended from Officer Wilson's gun in the process. After Officer Wilson fired his first bullet, he describes Mr. Brown as looking at him with, quote, the most intense, aggressive face. The only way I can describe it, he told the grand jury, quote, it looks like a demon. That's how angry he looked. Officer Wilson testified that Michael Brown was huge. He told the grand jury, quote, I mean it was, he's obviously bigger than I was and stronger. 
Now, it is true that Michael Brown was a big guy. 18 years old, he stood six foot four, he weighed 290 pounds. Darren Wilson himself also stands six foot four, uh, although he's not quite as heavy uh, as, as Michael Brown. Darren Wilson is not a small guy, 6'4", 210. But faced with what he describes as a demonic-seeming young man, a young man he called it to the grand jury, uh, Darren Wilson basically said he, he felt like a toy. He felt like a little kid in that actual kid's presence. This is how it appeared in the transcript of his grand jury testimony. He said, quote, when I grabbed him, the only way I can describe it is I felt like a five-year-old holding on to Hulk Hogan. That's just how big he felt and how small I felt just from grasping his arm. That's the way he said it to the grand jury, according to the transcript. And then tonight in an interview with ABC News, uh, Darren Wilson said it again. I had reached out my window with my right hand to grab onto his forearm because I was going to try and move him back and get out of the car to where I'm no longer trapped. And when I felt it, I just felt the immense power that he had. I mean, the way I've described it is it was like a five-year-old holding on to Hulk Hogan. That's just how big this man was. Hulk Hogan? He was very large. Very powerful man. You're a pretty big guy. Yeah, I'm above average. He's six foot four, armed, a trained police officer, inside a police car. The 18-year-old, he says he struggled with, is also six foot four, but to the officer, he seemed like Hulk Hogan, and the officer comparatively was a child. To the officer, that young man seemed like a demon. He told the grand jury that after he started shooting 18-year-old Michael Brown, the officer said he kept shooting further shots at him because of the way Michael Brown looked to him after he started shooting him. He said the teenager, after he had been shot, looked like he, quote, he was all, looked like, quote, he was almost bulking up to run through the shots. Like I was, like it was making him mad that I'm shooting at him. Bulking up to run through the shots. Officer Darren Wilson was afraid for his life, he says. He says that, that, that was his defense. He thought he had met Hulk Hogan, a larger-than-life threat that he could stop only by shooting. And even then, this demon that he saw would keep going through the shots by somehow bulking himself up to make himself immune to the shots because he was so angered by them. Gunfire only made it angry, this demon. We are two decades out from the super predator panic from the mid-90s. We now know that was just a racial fantasy that nevertheless drove a lot of policy and changed a lot of people's lives. The fact that that was two decades ago and there's been an apology since doesn't mean that fantasy's gone or that it's not still driving our judgment and our accountability. What drives a man to lock his doors and bar his windows tight? To leave his lights on timers so his house appears so bright? A temper fence around his door and cameras on the walls? A fortress so secure that he can hardly get in at all Fear is a villain when he grips you late at night He'll catch you when your back is turned, he's watching you I'll fight the man that turns on me if I must fight or die I will fight for justice and laws I can abide I'll try to fight with courage to always give my best For I must fight the fear itself that grows inside my breast Fear is a villain and he grips you late at night He'll catch you when your back is turned, he's watching you The detail that really 
struck me the most was from the the audio the officer who called in the shooting said shots fired male down black male maybe 20 so this is after they've shot him they say they estimate the kid's age to be 20 tamir rice was 12 i'm not sure actually how you know tall he is or how much he weighed he has a baby face in all of the pictures but even if he was tall i've known some tall 12 year olds I've never known a 12-year-old who looks like he's 20. No. Never. I've known I've known 12-year-olds who are six feet tall, but I've never looked at that 12-year-old and been like, that is a 20-year-old man. I've been like, that's a tall little boy, you know? And so that detail reminded me, uh, uh, close and frequent listeners may remember a study that I mentioned on the show um, maybe like two months ago now that I learned about that was an APA study, American Psychological Association, that had a a number of findings, but one of which is a group of mostly white students surveyed when they looked at black children, black boys ages 10 and older, between 10 and 17, they uh, overestimated the boy's age for an average of four and a half years. On average, these students looked at boys ages, black boys 10 and up, and overestimated their age by four and a half years, meaning you'd look at a 10-year-old and guess that kid is almost 15. And and you'd look at a minor and guess that they're an adult. Yes, which, you know, is... Uh, a quote-unquote adult in the, in the eyes of the law. In the eyes of the law, which is, I mean, to a T what happened here, except yeah. that you have a 12-year-old being at, having eight years added on to his age. But it was so striking to hear these cops looking at a boy on the ground who is incapacitated, not coming at them, and they still look at him and say he's probably 20. I mean, it's, you know, and then at that point you want to say, well, are they are they lying? Are they covering their asses because they know they've just shot a uh-huh. child? Or are they still, even in this moment, incapable of seeing seeing this child as a real child, right? Much like Darren Wilson seemed incapable of ever seeing Mike Brown as anything other than a demon threat who was who was coming at him. Yeah, who was who was five times taller than him. And the fact that they didn't give this child, they they assumed he was twenty. He's there alive in front of him, and they didn't administer first aid. As you said, also calls to mind that other study about white people not only assuming black people are magic and like associating like magic words with them. Yeah, ghost and. Super- Supernatural, ethereal. And, along with that, not imagining, not realizing that black people feel pain. Yeah, and that the more likely the the more likely you are to to associate black people with supernatural words and and powers, the it corresponds that you're less likely to see them as capable of feeling pain. And my strong suspicion, I'm not sure that if that particular study looked into this at all, but I think that there's probably a very close uh, correlation with your capacity to feel empathy also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I would very, very much guess that the more likely you are, if you're a white person, to associate black people with... Uh, the supernatural, you're much less likely, I would strongly suspect, to have the capacity for empathy. Yeah, to think this them. could be my 12-year-old child. Yeah, and and this this the the pain that this person is feeling is real. Yeah, and I can imagine myself feeling it. Yeah, you're, it's I, my guess is that it's that is much less likely. Yeah, and and what's you know significant um, about one of the many things that's significant about people seeing white people seeing black children as older than they are is that they lose the presumption of innocence right so um these this in the same study children ages 
10 and younger of, of all races were seen to be equally innocent. But 10, huh. 10 and older black children were seen to be significantly less innocent than children of other races. Interesting. So, uh, and, and, and seen to be more culpable. Um, so showed, shown a picture of a black child and asked, um, you know, are they, are they likely to be associated with something negative? The, the associations for a black child ages 10 to 17 are much higher. So, you know, so so not only is the kind of is the is childhood taken away from black children because they're assumed to be older, but the innocence that comes with childhood and you know the assumption that that you should be taken care of uh, goes away too. That's this 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 particular study is just so endlessly illustrative and and it it's so so helpful to explain so much of police behavior in in a very like immediate way. Mm-hmm. I mean the. The sort of historical explanations for police behavior are obviously important and necessary. The history of white supremacy and et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. a reaction against achievements from the civil rights era. Like it's important to understand all of those um, sort of historical uh, forces uh, acting on uh, cops, but just from a, a in a sort of like immediate subconscious in the moment. Um, explanation. This study, I think, really does does has amazing uh, explanatory power. It does, and it, it 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 you know it quantifies something that you can see in all so many other cases, right? That I thought a lot about during the Trayvon Martin trial. That at no point it was like it was off the table that Trayvon Martin was a child because he was 17. He was just yeah. assumed to be, even though he was legally, there's not even that ambiguity of like with Mike Brown, he's 18. Well, and as a law, he's an adult, but eight, we all know 18 year olds are also like not quite adults because of uh-huh. their first year of being legally an adult. Um, you know, legally, Trayvon Martin was a child, but it was like it, it, throughout the whole trial, it was he was never talked about like he was a child. He was always talked about like he was a grown man. And I was I was like, how is this possible that we're talking about this child like he was a, an adult? And and you know, so it was something that really struck me then. You know, and then again, not to mention other police shootings of children who were even younger, uh, like Kamani Gray, who was 16, and mm-hmm. also very baby-faced, tiny, and uh, was still, you know, seen as this imminent threat. And so now, yeah, to have it to have it quantified, like, you know, these black children are not seen as children. They are not seen as innocent. I mean, by a huge margin. We're not talking about being a little off. Four and a half years? That's, I mean, that's longer than high school. Yeah, that's a whole, right, you're in a whole different school at that point. Yeah. And and that means you're putting early adolescents, tweens, basically, you're putting them in the category of adults. And I think that that it's important too to remember that the uh, that this goes the other way too. And I would recommend anyone who you know sort of can read it without um, being triggered to read uh, Sabrina Erden Rubley's amazing story over at Rolling Stone mm-hmm. about um, rape and sexual assault at the uh, University of Virginia. But what reminded me of this is talking about 18-year-olds. Obviously, you think 18-year-olds, that's for many, um, not for, for you know a lot of people, that's first year of college. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to defending men who have been accused of rape, one of the things that we constantly hear from um, apologists, whether they be administrators or whoever else, is that these men or these boys have such a bright future. Yeah. And so 18 
if you're a white male means that you are just you're just entering into like the earliest stages of your potential. Yeah, you're just beginning your life. And you're wet behind the ears. Exactly. And and so to the to the same extent that like Trayvon is unquestionably an adult, an eighteen year old white male is unquestionably a child in so much as uh, he has his whole life in front of mm-hmm. him. And that is not, not responsible for his actions. Yeah, and that is just not the kind of rhetoric that we hear about police shootings of young black men from the media at large. We don't hear these men had their entire lives in front of them. We mm-hmm. hear, well, what did, what did they do in their past mm-hmm. to put themselves at, at risk or in danger? Or to, uh, what did they do in their past to deserve this? Yeah, so Mike ins- Brown is no angel. Yeah, so instead of looking at the 40 or 50 or however many years in the future that we assume young white men will have to, to grow and prosper, we look at the previous... 17 years or 16 years or 15 years and say, well, maybe there was a reason for this. And it's, the, you know, the fact that, that we look the in exact opposite way uh, is just really, really important to remember, I think. Since you bring that up, one more thing about Tamir Rice. He's too young to even be able to do that because 12, I mean, I, I feel like no one can even really be like, well, what did this 12-year-old do in his past? So guess what they did? They looked at his father and said oh, his yeah. father had an allegation of domestic violence in his past. On what earth does that have any relevance? Uh, does his father's, you know, background have one iota of relevance for why you pulled up to a park and shot this child? It's a very, very... Children waiting for the day they feel good. Happy birthday, happy birthday. And to feel the way that every child should sit and listen, sit and You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, this stops now. In the more than 100 days, residents of Ferguson waited to find out if justice would be sought for Mike Brown through the prosecution of his killer. Across the country, 14 more teenagers were killed by cops. Nina Stroklik details each of their deaths at the Daily Beast under the Hands Up tag. They were boys and girls from California to Missouri to Chicago to Georgia. The epidemic of a black person being killed by police every 24 hours clearly affects communities beyond St. Louis and requires all of us everywhere to care more and do better. Any activism call short of entirely end racism and its structural power to kill will feel unsatisfactory and somewhat hollow. I get that. So we must do more in our personal lives to call out racism where we see it and temper our fear of reprisal in our networks with an understanding that people of color fear more than reprisal. They fear injury and even death. The hashtag Alive While Black, created by writer Jamila Lemieux, is a must-read for white folks to see what ordinary interactions with the police are like for people of color. So what do we do? The Ferguson Response Tumblr has a listing of ongoing This Stops Now events to protest police injustice. Find or add your city to their list. Amplify the protests in your feeds. All the more important if you fear backlash from friends and family who don't see through their privilege to recognize what's happening. Next, 
we can take the artillery out of the hands of our police forces. The ACLU declares that our communities are not war zones. At least, they shouldn't be. Their petition at aclu.org slash action calls on the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, and Justice to redirect the $400 million a year funneled to police departments for military-grade weapons. Both Mike Brown's parents and President Obama are calling for that funding to go instead to outfit all police with body cameras. In their statement following Officer Darren Wilson's non-indictment, Mike Brown's family said the following, quote, We are profoundly disappointed that the killer of our child will not face the consequences of his actions. While we understand that many others share our pain, we ask that you channel your frustration in ways that will make a positive change. We need to work together to fix the system that allowed this to happen. Join with us in our campaign to ensure that every police officer working the streets in this country wears a body camera." You can sign the Brown family's Change.org petition specifically for the St. Louis force and let the White House know you expect them to follow through on the promises from the president's recent speeches. Last, and perhaps most importantly, as has happened countless times since the civil rights era, the only place the families can now turn is to federal authorities. Attorney General Eric Holder has publicly stated intentions to investigate and possibly bring federal civil rights charges in both Ferguson and New York. We must demand that the Department of Justice follow through. Sign the petitions in the segment notes and visit justice.gov to contact the DOJ directly through phone, email, and snail mail. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If equal justice under the law matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about This Stops Now and all the ways to demand justice for Mike Brown and Eric Garner's families via social media so that others in your network can be challenged to join the fight. Mooney, who's the author of The Republican Brain, which is, I, I love that book. It's a great book about just why it is Republicans are stupid heads, essentially. It's not really the premise of the book, but that's my takeaway. Um, but he has a, a great article in Mother Jones, which everyone should read. It's entitled The Science of Why Cops Shoot Young Black Men. It's a long article, and it's far too long for me to sit here and talk about. But mm-hmm. the the bottom line is that there are sort of cognitive t- neuro- cognitive tests that can be taken. It's called an implicit association test. The test measures race, racial pre- prejudices that we cannot consciously control. So, you know, we sit here and talk a lot about, you know, was Darren Wilson's cat, um, description of Mike Brown racist? Why is it that, that, that white cops are so trigger happy when it comes to black people? And this, this article sort of posits that it might not be conscious racial prejudices, but unconscious racial prejudices that, 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 that kind of impel police officers to be more quick to trigger uh, more quick to shoot black people than white people. So what the test does is it um, it asks you to rapidly categorize images of faces as either 
African American or European American, while at the same time you're categorizing words like evil, happy, awful, peace, as and you're categorizing these people as either good or bad. So they're flashing faces and words at you on the screen, and you just tap a key as fast as you can to indicate which category is appropriate. And now if you spend too much time thinking about whether or not the black face is evil or happy or good or bad, then the test tells you that you're being too slow. So the point is, is to really get, you know, your instinct about how it is that you categorize these different images that you're shown. And this author, I mean, Chris Mooney, he's a relatively liberal guy, but he said he took the test three times and that he was even shocked at how much, you know, inherent bias he had to the point where, he like couldn't even really take the, take the test anymore because he was trying so hard to overcome the biases while he was taking the test that the computer kept telling him he was being too slow. Okay. Um, it's a really interesting article. I'm probably not doing justice um, responding to it, but the, the takeaway of it is that there's psychological research that shows that suggests that people who that that you know Darren Wilson and George Zimmerman and those types of folks may not be conscious overt racists. And they don't have to be conscious overt racists in order to still act in racially charged ways. Um, and so there's this new science and this new science, it suggests that people can be taught to sort of, to work around those psychological pathways that lead to prejudice so that you can train your brain to be less racist. Huh. Which is actually, which is what, you know, I think cops need to do. I think police departments need to require that people go undergo this sort of psychological training to, to to make sure that you know so at least that they get this training so that if they're running down the street you know chasing a black guy you know there's their instinct is probably still going to kick in but at least maybe once their instinct kicks in their brain will say hey wait a minute you know i might be acting on biases let me slow my roll hmm. so it's it's really interesting right. it's really it's really really interesting well, these, um, are the, these are the things i like to hear though just uh just at least attempting to acknowledge the root of the problem as opposed to arming police officers or giving them cameras so that we can so that they can now cover it conveniently conveniently with a newspaper while they pummel black people so right yeah. <laughs> right well yeah this uh, this article definitely suggests that there are ways that we can train ourselves to be less racist um and and uh the the main takeaway well, that was the main takeaway but where's there's a chart that I sort of wanted to talk about okay so there's a chart in the, in this article and it's it's it um details the propensity to shoot so it's it's detailing the tendency to shoot at black versus white targets and regular people in the community people who aren't cops are more inclined to shoot at black targets like way 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 more inclined to shoot at black targets Cops are not as inclined as just regular people in the community to shoot at black targets, but they're still way more inclined to shoot at, to shoot at black targets than they are at white targets. Um, and participants are slower to press, like basically they show an image of a black man and a white man, and some of them are holding guns, some of them are holding harmless objects like wallets or, or cans of soda, and the person taking the test is asked to press shoot or don't shoot for each image. So the test, the, the results of the test demonstrate that participants are slower to press don't shoot when the unarmed target is black, and they're quicker to press shoot when an armed target is black. So, Basically, they're just inherent biases that people have that they don't necessarily know they have, which might explain why people get so upset when you call them racist. Like, oh, Darren Wilson is racist. And he's probably like, I'm not racist. What are you talking about? Some of my best friends are black. Well, you know what? He might not be racist. He might just be inher so inherently biased that it's a, at a subconscious level. Yes. Um, you know, and I, I think that's, 
That's I true. think it's really interesting. Like, there's something subconscious in his brain that may, I think we talked about this yesterday. Like, or maybe it was Elon who mentioned that, you know, when Darren Wilson says that he felt like he was a five-year-old dealing with Hulk Hogan, he probably really did feel that way. And that's a result of these unconscious biases that he has and these unconscious prejudices that he has about black people. I'm calling from Seattle to uh, respond to the, the comments from Mark from Texas. Hi, this is Mark. It's McKenzie. I'm from Wichita Falls, Texas. There was just so much wrong with what he had to say. I don't even know where to start. The issue is not the cops. The issue is the image that we portray to everybody else. The idea that there's something that we as black people are doing to deserve this or to make the police. I don't, I mean, there's. That's ridiculous. This, no, number one, this is not a new thing. We portray this tough, powerful image that we ain't going to take no more crap because of what our ancestors had to deal with. Why do we find it okay that it's okay to be a thug, but it's you're an Uncle Tom if you're smart and you talk proper? Number two, who is this we? He's like taking the position, he's speaking for all of us, or most of us, and it's so rare. I mean, this 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 image or this stereotype of this black person that they call someone an Uncle Tom because they read or because they speak, they use proper English or something. It's, it's, I guess maybe that's happened if I can, I mean, maybe when you're a child, you know, maybe 12-year-olds or 14-year-olds at the oldest, maybe say things like that. But I'm just looking for evidence. Who is saying this? Who is saying that this is okay and that we promote violence and that we promote the lack of education and ignorance and that, I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. The other thing is I just wanted to talk about um, the whole Michael Brown thing and how, I mean, it's comforting that at least there's this show and that there are people that support it and there are people that kind of see how, how nonsensical the whole thing is. But just when I was listening to, to Officer Wilson's explanation of what happened of, you know, he bulked up to run through bullets, and he's, you know, he looked like a deer. I, it was, it would be funny if he wasn't dead and if it didn't keep happening, but it was kind of terrifying how quickly people believed that, that people thought, yeah, that sounds reasonable that this person, you know, somehow could have the capacity to bulk himself up and run through a hail of bullets, that that made sense to so many people, and that that completely justified everything that they, everything else that they heard. It's hard to explain what it feels like to be on the receiving end of this and to know that people literally just based on your skin color think of you as like an animal, as like so two-dimensional, so, you know, if you've done one thing wrong in your life, you are a bad person and you have no depth to you. There's nothing else that you could offer the world that's, that's it and you deserve to die and good, we're glad you're gone. It's not easy to... It's, it's, it's not something, I mean, I go, I do a lot of, uh, you know, my commenting online just because I can't, you know, I, I don't want to risk my job and even bring it up at work, but I, it's like, I feel that people comment, they don't know what they're talking about, they make these statements and then they go off to bed and they sleep like babies and I'm just up all night with my heart racing and my blood pressure through the roof and I'm just, just how can we make people understand, how can we make people see that we've never deserved this, we've never done anything to deserve this, but it keeps happening to us. 
and and then when you have people like Mark out there reinforcing it, Mark, I don't know what if someone ever actually said that to you at some point in your life that you're an Uncle Tom because you speak properly or because you value education or whatever it was that you said. I don't know if that that actually happened to you. I'm sorry, but I kind of think that maybe if if someone called you an Uncle Tom, it was because you're supporting this narrative that that there's something that we need to do first before we deserve to be treated like human beings. And I don't know. Well, thanks for letting me rant. I hope somebody else can say it better. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Adele from New York City. First time caller lured into your voicemail line because of comments from episode 881, Processing Ferguson, Eric Garner, and beyond. The caller was Marcus from Texas. So he said a lot, but the meat of his comment is his suggestion that the conversation we need to have is not Blacks versus police, which I extend to racism, implicit bias, or police accountability, but that the conversation should be around the public image of Black people. So he rhetorically asks, why is this our image? Not in the sense of like who controls media and what racist tropes are perpetuated and all that. No, he asks, why is this our image to promote the idea that Black people are solely responsible for our poor portrayal and treatment and for the images that feed the assumptions that cops and others make when they justify their killing of us. He denies that racism is working in these uh, interactions. So some folks know this is respectability politics. I know you've spoken about it, but I find myself having this conversation more and more each day. And this is what uh, Marcus's comments boil down to. He's essentially asking, you know, how do we black people ensure that we have all our I's dotted and our T's crossed so that we are justified in our anger over uh, the type of violence at the hands of police that we are seeing and like how else do we prove to the world that we are worthy of humanity and I'll point out that no other group is really asked or even chastised publicly to do these type of acrobatics. The implications of respectability in Marcus's comments just just really break my heart and it's been tried, it's been tested and it, it won't work. There's no wardrobe overhaul, no diction or vocal cadence. No sunny disposition that black people could maintain in mass that would shift the narrative and alter this social arrangement and silence and compliance uh, won't do it either. Um, it is not just about one-off interactions between black people and cops. We need broad understanding of how institutional racism in the U.S. circumscribes the experiences of black people. We just really need to get there. And as a side note, this analysis is how we can understand why the cop doesn't have to be white in order to understand these killings as racist. And I've been noticing that that's a big derailing point in some of these conversations. So, yeah, um, my hope is that Marcus and other black people and other folks of color that are racking their brains for how to be better and are spending a lot of mental and emotional energy worrying about and criticizing those who embody some prominent stereotypes and worrying about how to distinguish themselves from those individuals in hopes of being accepted and protected. My hope is that they keep seeking answers and they encounter elders and peers and text dialogue analysis that elevates the conversation to its full picture so they know the truth of the depths of um, depth and intentionality um, and embeddedness of white supremacy and anti-blackness in the United States. We need to call racism what it is at all levels from the internalized mess that tells black people that they deserve to die because they didn't do enough to prove their humanity and tells white people that none of this is their problem, then all aspects of the system um, that codifies, finances, justifies, and champions oppression and calls it progress. Just one disclaimer, I'm aware that folks also get distracted by any talk of black-white binary. I definitely hear that, but I also insist that you can't understand that full picture without understanding the historical nature and ongoing function of that binary, especially anti-blackness. 
in the foundation of the United States. So I'll leave it there. Thanks for taking my message. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I must say that I was I was really happy with both of the messages uh, that I got to play on today's episode. Uh, really good points made by everyone. And I'll admit, I felt a little bad for uh, Marcus from Texas, who, who both of these uh, callers were responding to because I knew exactly the types of response he was going to get. But I figure, you know, as long as people are going to keep making the arguments that he was sort of uh, trying to put the focus on what black people are doing wrong and what they should do better. And if only they would do things better then things would be better for them. As long as people are going to keep making that argument, then I think we need to keep pushing back against it. And so I, I think it's a, it's an important conversation to keep having. Um, and as I was just sitting down to uh, record, I got a message on Facebook. Gary Birch wrote in and he, he sort of said that he was debating calling in, but uh, he was afraid that he would swear too much in response to uh, Marcus from Texas. So he, he just wrote on uh, Facebook instead, and one of the points he made that uh, I particularly enjoyed was he was saying that basically the, the tenets of that respectability politics idea the, that, you know, the dominant society keeps telling black people, you know, if you'd only do this, then we'd accept you. Uh, it's just like Lucy moving the ball from Charlie Brown as he goes to kick it. For, just for the past few hundred years, we've been saying, you know, if only you do this, then, uh, you know, then you'd be accepted into society turns out it's really not working out that way. Uh, so thanks again uh, to those callers for calling in, making all the points they did. I think it's an important conversation. We're going to keep hammering away at it and, uh, you know, because we're trying to change the dominant narrative here. So better to address it than ignore it. Uh, one quick last note on the callers, though. I'm sure many of you have noticed. Uh, I'm also sure many of you haven't noticed because that's the, the nature of the patriarchy. Uh, but I'm sure many of you have noticed, and I certainly have, that the callers into the show skew about five to one in favor of men. And I'm not talking about what gets played on the show. I mean, the voicemails I receive, I'm certainly not, you know, making any effort to exclude women from the conversation. I just hear from very, very few of them. It's really unfortunate. So, you know, my desire would be to have the callers be as diverse as they possibly could be. So if you hear your, your perspective or, or your sort of, uh, demographic being underrepresented, then please consider calling into the show, giving your opinion. Who knows? You may say the exact same thing that a boring old white guy would say, but it'll be interesting to hear that it's coming from someone with a different perspective uh, than a white guy, because frankly, we hear from a lot of white guys. So the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and 
and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And Stop.